Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Doomer Optimism podcast. This is Jason. Uh, today we have a special guest, The Last Farm on Twitter at The Last Farm. And uh, I wanted to have you on. You recently came on my radar, um, uh, especially with a pretty viral tweet that a lot of people seem to like uh, about kind of creating municipal food forests under kind of a agenda of eco-socialism to kind of tie it all together. Uh, but before we get into all of that, do you want to just talk a little bit about your background, some formative experiences, and kind of tie together some of these strands of your influences leading you to where you are now? Sure. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Flattered to be here. I'm excited to be talking to this audience. It's really cool. Um, so yeah, my background is is in permaculture and um, in political organizing. And um, I got into permaculture a long time ago, just happened to stumble across a Bill Molson book. And it really captured my imagination. I was really into gardening and growing food already. And it just blew my mind the the insight and systematic systematic approach um to creating a whole system um that i found in permaculture but parallel to that was my interest in politics and in making change and um i never it took me a long time i guess to tie those two things together to understand how they related or if they related at all and it's it's still something i'm exploring certainly but um it makes me a bit of an outsider in the world uh, I'm in now where you know, I'm a homesteader and yeah. um, interested in participating in that community, certainly, because it's what I do every day. Um, but I think most people come to homesteading uh, as a kind of rejection of politics, uh, as an anti-politics. And um, that's not my approach. And so I think that's, um, you know, where I've uh, where I've been a little bit of an outside voice in the conversations I've had with other folks kind of in the orbit of this podcast is mm -hmm. I just came at it from a different angle. Um, I'm here for different reasons. And so um, that's kind of how those two things converge. Politically, I'd say I've, I've you know, like a lot of people, I've uh, explored a number of different approaches to politics over the years. Um, I was first radicalized by uh, the Zapatista uprising in Chiapas. And um, I went there and um, participated to an extent in uh, meeting Zapatistas and seeing their system of governance and uh, how it related to agriculture and all kinds of different things. And that really um, changed my political orientation a lot and put me more in the direction of anarchism um, and explored that for a long time and have tried to make sense of, you know, what anarchism looks like in the contemporary world and so on and so forth. And uh, more recently, I've moved away from that and towards um, what I would describe as an eco-socialist analysis. Uh, and that's been a product of, of sort of understanding the limitations uh, of anarchism and, and what it can accomplish. And simultaneously with all that, just in my life, I've um, made changes. And now I'm fortunate enough to live on my own piece of land. And I've, I've practiced permaculture for many years in different spaces, uh, community gardens, um, backyards, um, nonprofit food forest projects, all kinds of different things. And so now I'm, I'm able to do that full time, which is great. But uh, it's left me still exploring how to connect my politics um, to my agricultural practice. And so that's a lot of what I talk about, um, on Twitter and hopefully what I'll be writing about a bit in the future. Yeah. Great. Um, well, maybe I'll jump right in. So I, that you had a back and forth with an account, uh, mutual of both of ours, uh, Brian Abyss, 
who definitely leans more in the anarchist and I think what he would call and others call dual power kind of philosophy. And, you know, you mentioned the Zapatistas. I, I know that one of the ideas there is this idea of Zapatismo, of kind of like this network of like the solidarity network across communities seeking their own autonomy uh, and kind of deliberative democracy kind of frameworks. Um, what did you find, what what inherent limitations did you find with that model? Why did you move away from it? Well, I still find it deeply fascinating. And I guess something that I would say at the outset is that, you know, politics is the struggle for power. Mm-hmm. That's what it's reduced to at the end of the day. The way that manifests is entirely context dependent. The struggle for power in Southern Mexico is going to look different than the struggle for power um, in California. Those are totally different places with different political economies facing different challenges. So the idea that you could just plug and play a system that makes sense in Chiapas to, to elsewhere is not, to me, a coherent vision for, for how to practice politics. We need to understand that the struggle for power is going to look entirely dependent, different depending on who is currently holding power and how. And so there's plenty to learn from the EZLN and the model that they've implemented there, but it's not something that can just be tidally reproduced. And, and they will acknowledge this as well. The EZLN was started by a group of Marxist academics who moved from Mexico City to the jungle and basically tried to pull a Cuban revolution. And what, they will freely admit that they evolved enormously in doing so because they saw that that model, the model that was successful in Cuba, could not just be copy-pasted onto Chiapas you know, 40 years later. So I think the limitations we see there is that works to an extent there, but that doesn't mean it'll work everywhere. Um, but additionally, there's a reason that the EZLN still controls a little sliver of Chiapas and not anywhere else. And why that hasn't propagated into a million other places and, you know, lit the world on fire is that not everyone can do that. And that model doesn't make sense everywhere. Additionally, it took them 20 years of living in the jungle and working directly in the communities that they worked with in order to pull off what they did. And even then, it was, by their own admission, a a suicidal gambit. I mean, many of them went into battle with the Mexican state with prop weapons, with literally like carved wooden guns. Uh, and so it, it's, a very, it's a special set of circumstances. It also had this enormous macroeconomic feature to it, which was the signing of NAFTA, which is what spurred um, the uprising to begin with. So that's just not reproducible everywhere. Um, however, there, are, there is a lot to learn from it. But you can see the extent of, you know, when you try to copy paste it in certain ways, certain aspects of it, you end up with things like Occupy Wall Street, which is very much inspired by that model of collective deliberation, consensus decision-making, et cetera. Um, and yeah, it was basically, you know, a, a, a earnest effort to uh, address inequality in the United States that um, did not go anywhere, right? And it was, a, by its own standards, it was a failure. Yeah. Now, there was a, a sort of accidental spillover to that into the Bernie 2016 campaign, but that you could never argue that was by design. That certainly wasn't. Mm-hmm. So, and then furthermore, in my own experience with anarchism, the anti-globalization movement, and so on, like trying to replicate these models in the center of imperial power as opposed to in the periphery, it's just not necessarily, it's not the same space. It doesn't occupy the same kind of um, power struggle. It's just a different thing. So, I think we always have to be open to different models of change, depending on where we are, 
what we're doing, what time it is, you know, so on and so forth. There are strategic questions that are very important. And that contributed actually to the, the tweet you're referring to um, in, in terms of why I think now might be a good time to talk about municipal eco-socialism. Um, okay. Well, yeah. I, I want to get, I want to get back to kind of questions about political economy and eco-socialism, but before we do that, why don't we go through um, your, your thread here? Um, sure. You know, an infrastructure agenda for municipal eco-socialism and, while at the end you you say you know we can't just work on a local scale we have thing in you know national even international levels but you you start by talking about town county food forests do you, what what is the what is the idea behind that yeah so to, to connect it to that timing question in my theory of change putting applying pressure strategically is very important you can't just do the same thing at any time and place and expect it to work and there's a really unique opportunity right now which is in this post-COVID environment, you know, for years and years and years, people on the left have been talking about how fragile globalization is, how fragile supply chains are, and how, you know, how that leads to food insecurity and et cetera, et cetera, all these things. And, you know, there's probably some wild-eyed preppers saying the same thing, and all of us are considered highly marginal. Everybody else is having the time of their lives, you know, living in this neoliberal consumption orgy. Mm-hmm. And we're these, you know, these wet blankets being like, well, what if something happens and you might not, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Then COVID came along and all of a sudden everybody had this pants shitting moment of realizing they might not be able to get toilet paper again or whatever. And so this point about the fragility of globalization has been illustrated in a really visceral way for everybody. And so that creates an opening in my view. There's an opportunity to say like, hey, it might be a good idea to get some of these things a little closer to home if you want to be able to access them in in, in the future, especially given things like climate collapse and so on and so forth. So starting with food forests made a lot of sense to me because, you know, food is a very uh, basic need and also something that's relatively easy to supply relative to, you know, complex industrial goods and things like that. So I also have experience with food forests. I like planting them. I think they're marvelous for a whole variety of reasons. Um, And also municipalities across the country have tons of excess land. I mean, highway departments alone, you know, own enough land to feed tons and tons of people. So, um, you know, I thought in terms of the ease of accomplishing something like that, proof of concept already exists. We already know food forests work. Um, that seemed like kind of a gimme. Right, right. Okay, so and it's not just food; it's also it's also fuel, right? So, I mean, so starting with the food, uh, you talk about perennials. There's a big emphasis on perennials, like fruit and nut trees, bushes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure this also involves like gardens, raised beds um things like that um and then you also talk about kind of compost systems you talk about black soldier flies what what are black let's talk about black soldier flies what, what are those <laughs> sure. yeah this may be one of the things people are a little bit less familiar with of all the yeah. things i listed mm-hmm. uh black soldier flies are just flies but they're not the house flies that you know um they're flies that you probably have have never noticed despite the fact that they're around all the time um, so they, they are a, um, a, basically a, a waste food eating larva that is found in manure piles and, you know, waste sites all over the world. They've been called privy flies for a long time in the South because you, if you didn't find them in your outhouse, you would intentionally put them there because one of the phenomenal things 
about black soldier flies in larval form is that they outcompete a lot of nuisance pests like house flies and so on and so forth. And they don't spread disease in the same way those things do because they don't like to land on your cutlery and things like that. So they're these highly efficient digesters of organic material. Uh, their conversion rate of input to output is about four to one, which is really good. Um, and, and they turn your junk, whether it's you know waste products and food or, or, or human or animal waste, um, into larva very efficiently. And those larva can then either go on to become flies or you can capture the larva and feed them to chickens or if you're particularly adventurous, feed them to yourself. Um, and they're really rich sources of protein, fat, etc. So they make excellent feed. They can be dehydrated or frozen and kept more or less indefinitely. Um, and in doing this, in reproducing themselves and eating your, your junk, they also produce their own waste, which in insects is called FAS, and it's a very nutrient-rich product. It can be sold as fertilizer or used as fertilizer as well. So there have been, all the ideas, by the way, I listed in this thread have proof of concept. There are people who have done these things at scale somewhere for all of them. And so there have been, because black soldier flies tend to prefer warmer weather in places like Thailand, things like that, people have built munis small municipal scale black soldier fly digesting systems. And um, it's just a way of turning trash into something useful. And, you know, we produce loads and loads and loads of organic waste all the time, right. turning that into something that can be eaten by chickens, which then produce eggs or meat, et cetera. You're just turning something that you're throwing away and is burdensome into something that's essential. Nice, nice. Um, then you also talk about uh, like fuel woods. You talk about coppice agroforestry. Do you want to describe that a little bit? Sure. This one was weirdly controversial. Um, so <laughs> coppice agroforestry, like, you never know what it's going to be with Twitter, right? right? Like, yeah. uh, For some reason, the concept of coppice agroforestry and, uh, was the one that lit, people, lit people's fire. Um, so of many different trees, when you cut them down, once they grow, they grow a big, long trunk tree like we know. If you cut them down, a lot of them won't die. They will re-sprout from the base and a sort of crown will come out of it, producing many smaller uh, stalks. And those things will continue to grow and eventually you'll get like a big, tall, bushy shrub. This is something that's been known to people for millennia and has been practiced for a long time that tree will more or less regrow indefinitely if it's maintained properly. You can cut those things that come off of it, the new stems, depending on the tree, every five to 20 years. And those can be used for anything from fuel to construction uh, to a million other things. This is still practiced commercially and traditionally in the UK um, and many other places in Europe. And so it's, despite it being an obscure concept, it's far from a new one. Um, and so the, what really spurred me to include this in the thread is, again, this kind of timely strategic issue, which is uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine, which has led to a, a heating crisis in Central Europe. And so that sort of spurred me to think, OK, there's probably a lot of people thinking right now about, like, how could I get fuel right. <laughs> uh, without relying on an extremely fragile and geopolitically fraught uh, global supply chain and, and if they, switch to, if they switch to fuel wood um there's a threat of deforestation and further exacerbation of climate change etc right but yeah i mean if you're chopping down which if you're cutting down old growth forests to create fuel pellet you know wood pellets which is exactly what they're doing in central europe um that's obviously a, a big time net loser 
there's no shortage of degraded land um, that might be unsuitable for annual crops or whatever else that could easily support coppice agroforestry. And um, that is a huge upgrade for a lot of land that would otherwise not host any, um, you know, wooded uh, environment. And additionally, for you know, it has the human benefit of supplying a more or less perpetual supply of of heating, um, along with everything else. So, I, I think that's just kind of a gimme. If you're like, you know, as I said on Twitter, like if Vladimir Putin wakes up feeling especially cranky, like everyone in Germany is going to be walking around their apartments in sleeping bags and burning their toilet paper in the sink for heat. And so, you know, it might be nice to uh, turn some degraded agricultural land into something that could produce uh, wood fuel. And, and additionally, that becomes an ecological benefit, too, because lots of things can live in a copse that wouldn't otherwise live there. Right, right. OK. And, uh, and a related part of your thread, construction woodlots, in, in particular, black locust. Um, sure. what, what's special about black locust? Well, it's extremely fast growing. It's a nitrogen fixer and it's naturally rot resistant. Uh, a black locust po post sunk directly into the soil, even wet soil, uh, will last 100 to 150 years and doesn't need any treatment at all. Um, treated lumber is uh, just a host of toxic garbage goes in there to prevent wood from rotting. Black locust has the, the quality of being able to do that without any of that. And it grows very quickly. And as I mentioned in the thread as well, it also blooms rather spectacularly and provides food for pollinators. Um, there are some complaints in some places about it being invasive. It is a North American native species that's expanding on its own um, through the eastern hardwood forests, because, partly because of climate change, partly just because it's a competitive plant. Um, but, you know, the whole debate about invasives and so on is kind of a different discussion. But suffice it to say, it's an extremely useful plant. The purpose that that post was not to say it has to be black locust. It was just to offer a suggestion that might be useful. There might be other appropriate species in different locations. But either way, I mean, we've all seen the price of lumber skyrocket um, in the last two years. It's had a significant impact on people's ability to build and renovate homes. And so if you miss, you know, we're ha we have a housing crisis in this country, just mm -hmm. seems like it would be a good idea to secure a supply um, of construction lumber. Uh, close to home that isn't dependent on the you know the vagaries of international commodity markets. Nice, nice. Is there any in this thread? I want to get to kind of the political economy side of this thread, but before we do that, is there any anything else you want to highlight with regards to to trees and plants? Um, I mean, I, I guess I would just say that there's you know again this wasn't meant to be like a one weird trick thing right like you could substitute a lot of these for other concepts there are plenty of ways to compost food waste you know there's plenty of ways to grow construction lumber or whatever mm -hmm. um these are just concepts that i know that i'm familiar with and also they're proven and tested and they've been done at scale so um you know as it, it does this to tie this back kind of to the the political economy question these things are context dependent, right? The goal is not to say plug and play these solutions into every location. That's not at all how permaculture works. Mm -hmm. Just to offer examples of things that we already know work. So I, I do think it's a particularly ripe moment to, to introduce people to these things and to try to get them off the ground in a more organized structural way through municipal action. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, if, if these threads help spur people's imagination and get people thinking about how they might do that in a local setting then great mm -hmm. 
Nice. Um, and then you also mentioned uh, like uh, municipal county owned supermarkets and perhaps also like construction programs, kind of like um, Habitat for Humanity, but natural building, but it, it would also be uh, run by the state. And you also mentioned um, that much of the municipal land that would be used for these activities, you know, might be managed by the by the school system. Do you want to do you want to talk about that complex of ideas? Sure. I mean, uh, what all those relate to is that we we have these institutions in all of our communities. They're just badly degraded mm -hmm. and they've been degraded by design. Right. We live in this um, in, a, in a not very effective or competent state because that has served the private interests of um of people who have had wielded a lot of power in this country for a long time. And so, you know, generally the argument goes when you imagine some kind of state intervention in your life, you're like, ugh, do you want to, you know, Republicans will say, do you want to imagine living in a world run by the DMV? And, you know, the cons that's supposed to turn you off from the concept of ever having, um, you know, a state-run institution. And that's just such a it's such a sleight of hand because they have crashed our, our state capacity into the gutter and lit it on fire on purpose because that has enriched the people who who they represent. And so it makes sense to me as someone who believes in the commons to reinvigorate these institutions, something like the public school system. Mm -hmm. Um has a great deal of capacity and competence that has just been terribly abused. And so creating opportunities to use that capacity and expand it and improve upon it, I think are really essential going forward. Um, we've seen what happens when people don't trust their institutions and when their institutions fail them. And so finding creative ways to, um, to, to build a new world through them and to transform them in the process is, is the goal of that, that framework. Um, so yeah, the, there's also obviously a variety of other benefits to that things like the educational benefits of having the school system uh, run a food forest program. Um, and then, you know, for the other, the other concept of, of um, town or county owned supermarkets, again, this is already existing. The irony being, that this is something that's been done primarily in right-wing parts of the country that have been abandoned by supermarket capitalism and simply don't have markets. And so towns out of desperation have simply uh, opened their own and inadvertently have proven just how easy it is for local government to, to do something like that. And again, that's about removing something that is vital to our existence from, uh, from, the marketplace that would require it to be a profit ma maximizing machine instead of what it should do, which is a food distribution machine. Mm. Um, and so that puts it, that makes that system more resilient. It puts it into the hands of people that aren't exclusively motivated by profit. Um, and it allows for a different set of values to be applied to the decision-making process. Okay. Okay. You mentioned the commons. Do you, <clears throat> do you draw any contrast between the idea of the commons and the idea of this like state run enterprises are they are they is that the same thing to you or because an anarchist might say that the commons are very different than something that the state would would try to run I, I think there's not one answer to that there are many historical examples going one way or the other I mean people often hold up uh, historical examples when things look particularly unpleasant in that regard and you know there's a lot of debate on about the character of um you know what the late ussr was like for instance and lots of people call it state capitalism 
um, things like that. So I think that it certainly can be. The anarchist position is that it cannot be, that the state is necessarily incapable of doing that. And I have come to disagree with that notion. Mm-hmm. I think that, again, to return to a point <laughs> I made earlier, we have our view of the state in this country has been is is kind of a basically a byproduct of reaganism it's a it's a blinkered view of the state as being necessarily oppressive necessarily incompetent and incapable um, of functioning for the benefit of the commons even if it wants to and again it's just it, that's a that's a snapshot of history that is not what that institution actually is or is not capable of and you can see that just by a reading history and b going to other places um, there is competent government elsewhere in the world that that is that performs these tasks regularly mm-hmm. efficiently and comfortably and so it's just that generalizing it in that way i think is a mistake yeah. So uh, what do you think are the necessary conditions? Because a lot, like you said, when people hear the term socialism, you know, that term has a lot of uh, mimetic and historical baggage associated with it, um, right or wrongly, uh, you know, and they often think about, you know, a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of inefficiency and kind of oppressive regulations that people aren't really <clears throat> close to what's really going on. And uh, kind of the administrative state. Uh, w- what do you see as kind of the conditions for a well-run kind of socialist governance? That's a big question. I guess the first thing I would say, though, is to explain the characterization you just made, okay. I think is very important because to understand historical socialism and how we arrived at that perception of it, you have to understand that every effort to create actually existing socialism has been met with overwhelming capitalist violence. And so the fact that socialist projects have turned into these kind of paranoid, dysfunctional uh, um, failures is has to be put in context of the fact that they have been besieged on all sides by capitalism, both literally and figuratively, even before the moment of inception. Even calling yourself a socialist or an anarchist or a communist in this country was illegal for a long time, um, would land you in jail, would meant professional suicide, and of course around the world it meant literal assassination at the hands of the CIA and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So what we're talking about are a series of projects for collective liberation that have been the product have been subject to horrendous abuse. And so the fact that they have become uh, often have become inward-looking and paranoid and, and dysfunctional it should not be a surprise. But to say that that accurately characterizes socialism itself, um, I think, would be a terrible mistake. So the goal has always been to have a democratic socialism, small d, a socialism that is um, of and for the people served by it. And that is impossible to do in a state of constant warfare. So the the task for socialists is to find a path to socialism that does not involve perpetual warfare with capitalism. And that is a big part of, of my vision for change and how it happens and how it needs to happen. And it, it is simply facing the reality that... Um, a revolutionary approach, one that relies on ruptural change, 
um, has historically and probably will continue for a very long time to bring bring the full weight of capitalist violence down on it. And the reality is that that is just pro- that is un- except under extraordinary circumstances, probably not a fight we can win, and almost certainly not a fight we can win without terribly distorting ourselves in the process. So, I, does that answer the question? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, let's talk a little bit more about you know in in kind of your ide- idealized kind of socialist vision. You know, one I, I'm I'm interested in kind of. The view of subsidiarity because you've talked about it, it can't just happen at a, at a municipal level it should happen at a national level and even an international level and so you know what is you know what is the role of scale and the appropriate scale uh, of governance and but then also in terms of non-state actors right so we don't need to you know oftentimes that's portrayed as that's like the capitalist firm but you know we can talk about workers cooperatives we can talk about the commons that that aren't you know, uh, part of the state apparatus. Um, we can talk about individual, you know, homesteaders, right? Um, you know, do do individual homesteaders who have some kind of long-term rights to their land, would that exist under under your ideal system? Do you want to, yeah, do you kind of get what I'm, what I'm aiming at here? Yeah, I, there's a million questions there. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, I'll do my best to answer them. I hope I might have to ask you for a, a reminder, but I think that the the one thing I want to back up on is this question of like, what is your ideal system? Because I think what really underlie, like what, what's really behind that question, is is a question about means versus ends, right? Like when I advocate for political solutions to problems uh, and whatever that might look like. I think people often wonder, like, does that mean we have to to do this forever? Does that mean you like this? And the question of means versus ends is a very complicated one that I've grappled with for a long time. In the anarchist conception, at least the contemporary anarchist conception, there can be no separation whatsoever between means and ends. What you do is what you create. And that was a, a framework that I used for a long time, and I now come to regard that as incorrect. Because... The reality is that you end, if you follow that path, you end up living like a, a sort of anti-capitalist monk, and that actually does not accomplish anything. It may make you feel better, it make you, may make you feel pure, but it does not actually threaten capital. And uh, so then on the other end of the spectrum would be a, a highly authoritarian view that if your cause is just... Uh, it justifies doing literally anything in the service of it. And I reject that as well, because obviously that leads you to some incredibly dark places. And I don't believe uh, that you can justify anything if your cause is just. So what you're left with instead is this very unsatisfying middle ground, which is that you have to constantly assess whether or not the ends justify the means, whether or not you're straying too far from the values that you're hoping to embody in the end, or whether you are doing something unpleasant but necessary in order to get there. And unfortunately, there is not a clear a clear answer to that that can be applied in every situation. There are just there's just a balancing of values and strategy that has to happen um, with brutal honesty in order to assess that. So you know, that's why the reason I say this is, again, to go back to 
if, if I advocate that we say engage in a lot of uh, electoral politics, does that mean that my utopia involves a lot of electoral politics? The answer is no, but it is my assessment of the current political landscape that that is the path to make the kind of change that I believe we need. Mm-hmm. So I guess I just want to say that at the beginning to kind of clarify where I'm coming from and the, the sort of constant assessment of tactics and strategy that has to happen in order to engage in change in politics ethically. Okay. So I'm saying that at the outset. <laughs> um, and then, um, so the question is, you know, how does, how does scale sort of play into this? And I imagine the question is really like, are you imagining, um, you know, global governance, new world order, top-down dictatorial socialism, that sort of thing? Or are you imagining a kind of bottom-up, EZLN-style um, system? And the answer, again, is it's complicated. There are some things um, where international action sim- is simply necessary and others where it is not. And it comes back to a philosophical question, which is who is impacted by this decision? So on, you know, in the, in the question of like climate change, for instance, it's very clear that local action is not enough. It does not matter what country or what piece of land is emitting greenhouse gases, right? We're all impacted by it anyway. And since we are impacted, we have, we should have a say in that. Um, this is called the harm principle in philosophy. So if you accept that, the very basic premise that people don't have a right to harm other people without their consent, and that if there's something someone else wants to do that might harm you, you should have a say in that, then you have to accept that things like global ecology require an international global scale uh, system of governance on some level. And of course, the goal would be for that to be as democratic as possible but the reality is that the further and further you move from the small scale, from the individual or the family unit or the collective, um, the more representation you have to engage in and the harder it becomes. But you can't get away with Sorry, go ahead. Real quick, a lot of people try to differentiate when they're talking about international scale coordination. They try and differentiate international governance with international government. Do, do you find that a meaning, meaningful distinction or not? Not really. I think they're, what they're probably fearful of is that the word government is associated with heavy-handed bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's a, a historical relic rather than something that is inherently true about government. Um, I mean, both are, are both at the end of the day are a legal framework, right? And both are, are attempting to enforce something. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't find it a meaningful distinction. I think that... Uh, the bottom line is, and this is true of every form of government, is that if you if you want to do democracy, you can't simply allow people to vote for whatever they want. And so there has to be a system that prevents people from crossing certain red lines, right? If 51% of the population voted to nuke the entire planet and cause you know human extinction, mm-hmm. we would not be obliged to, fo- to follow the will of the majority. Uh, that's why we have a, con- that's the whole concept of the constitutional Republic, right? Is that there are things that cannot be voted upon, even if every single person voted for the extermination of an ethnic group, that would not be permissible. Right. And so that same problem exists at the international level. If, you know, many people, even most people want to make the, ha- the planet uninhabitable by releasing unlimited amounts of CO2, that still should not be permitted. Right. Because that harms people who have not given their consent for it. So, 
you have to have some sort of structure in order to prevent those kinds of outcomes. Mm-hmm. What exactly that structure looks like it looks like is very hard to say. And I guess I would invoke Marx here, who said um, that you know you can't write recipes for the cookshops of the future. And the the point is in his saying that is you have to struggle towards that solution. But what the the actual details look like have to be hammered out um, in the kind of sausage making of politics. You know, in, in terms of what is possible and what is desirable and the constant negotiation between those two things. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have, do you have a a comment uh, about, you know, a lot of people are fearful of like WEF new world order kind of technocratic, you know, techno techno authoritarian, you know, these are different uh, descriptors of that. Do you share similar concerns or do you think it's a made up, conspiracy theory or or how do you how do you see that all of that i think this idea has been weaponized by some very paranoid people on the right but i do share it just in a totally just from the left i guess essentially and i think we already have that in in things like the imf and the world bank they have imposed neoliberal austerity on on every corner of the globe essentially and so it is you know if people are realistic about what they should be afraid of it's not the concept of of you know a socialist world dictator telling them that they have to share with their neighbors or whatever it's the existing neoliberal institutions that shape every aspect of our lives um and so yeah i obviously global governance can be uh, extremely detrimental but it doesn't have to be um nothing ha- these things are just are empty vessels they are concepts they, are, they do not inherently have a character and so yeah i as someone who has participated in in organizing opposing those structures i certainly see them as problematic but i don't see the concept of say an international uh, world trade uh, constitution as problematic, which is essentially what the World Trade Organization is. I think the idea of rules governing trade are is good, and I think the the problem is that the rules we have were written by capitalists for the benefit of capitalists, uh, not that they are written at all. That's not the problem. Okay. Okay. And let's so so we talked about kind of the international scale. What about kind of um, I guess, I guess, what do you, how do you feel about the concept of sub, sub, subsidiarity in terms of governance? Like what, what issues do you think are best handled at a, at a more local scale? I, I think to, this returns to the concept of who is impacted by it, mm-hmm. right? So there's, you know, the pe- people who are impacted, this is why, this is why socialism stands in opposition to liberal democracy liberal democracy is the concept is that we are all citizens of a nation and every person gets one vote so that is the opposite of what i just described which is that everybody regardless of where they are who is impacted by a decision deserves a say in it right that subverts the concept of citizenship it doesn't matter if you're a Bangladeshi or an American, and if you are impacted by the, the, you know, a coal plant, then you have a right to speak to it and to have a say in its, uh, you know, in its operation. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the other part of it is that it's not proportional, right? Like people in our in our liberal democracy get to vote on things regardless of how impacted they are by it. So even if you're not impacted at all, you still get a say. Whereas in a radical democracy, people who are impacted the most get more say. And so those are the two key things that separate radical democracy 
uh, from liberal democracy. The last one, which is a very difficult one to solve, is the ability to leave or to be excluded. That's something that David Graeber talks about. It's kind of a whole other conversation, uh, but that factors into it as well. Hmm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so do you, do you uh, so I mean, kind of branching off of this idea of subsidiarity and governance, do you uh, subscribe to the to a notion of kind of, of localism, of the importance of kind of local building up local community life. I, I assume you do, but I just I just wanted to um, to check. My question is in the service of what? Yeah. Like for its own sake? For I mean, in my analysis, every aspect of our life has been corroded by capitalism. We are atomized mm-hmm. and our material existence is commodified in a way that is deeply alienating from each other and from our material world. And so that corrosion leads people to have all kinds of different reactions. And some of those reactions are, are deeply reactionary. They, are, uh, they search for blame in the wrong places. If the goal of, of relocalizing our culture is to come together in opposition to that corrosion by capitalism and to build something new based on human values, then great. If that is about creating a reactionary movement that seeks to assign blame for the corrosion caused by capitalism mm-hmm. um, onto you know whoever it is, um, then I think that that's deeply troubling, right? That's led to some of history's worst worst abuses. Yeah, yeah. One one concept that um, that I play around with sometimes is this idea of cosmopolitan localism, which is, uh, you know, it is trying to find a balance. It's not it's not clear that it's possible of um, reinvigorating kind of local communities and human scale, right? So, like human scale agriculture, for example, um, and but at the same time, not you know that not leading to kind of an inward looking focus and 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 not precluding you from addressing kind of larger scale coordination issues as well as diffusion of innovation across localities um and you know in in the kind of the theorizing behind this and, and a related concept cosmolocalism which is kind of this idea of design global have a design global design commons and then manufacture local or produce local um, the, you know, there's this idea that the internet makes this kind of uniquely possible where it wasn't possible in the past. And so there, there could perhaps be this kind of horizontal coordination among localities where you, you know, again, and theoretically you would get the best of both worlds. You get the best of, you know, kind of a strong sense of place and sense of ecology and sense of culture and traditions, uh, as well as, um, you know, this more cosmopolitan uh, exchanging of ideas, um, mutual aid, things of that nature. I'm curious what you think about that idea. That sounds great to me, but my question is how do we get there and why aren't we there now? And without that analysis, I think that it becomes very utopian, right? So it's Mm -hmm. to me, and this is, I think, at the root of many of my disagreements with people in in the kind of homesteading space or the tumor optimism satellite world or whatever you call it is that I, the question of how to make that kind of change and why it does not already exist comes down to a debate between materialism and idealism and most people it, it seems um are idealists 
They believe that our material conditions are a byproduct of our ideas. And I believe the opposite, that our ideas are largely a byproduct of our material conditions. And so I don't think that the reason we don't have cosmopolitan cosmopolitan localism is that we don't have the right ideas. I think it's that we don't have the right material conditions to, to create a system based on those values. Mm-hmm. So I think that sounds very cool. It sounds like a world I'd love to live in. But getting there is not a matter of persuading or convincing other people that it's a good idea. It's a matter of changing our material conditions. Most of our ideas flow from those conditions. And so in order to get pe- like the corrosion of those local, of those local relationships and, uh, you know, it is not a byproduct of people simply losing sight of it or reading the wrong books or whatever. It's that we live in a society that atomizes us constantly through a million social interactions and economic relationships and political relationships. That's called social reproduction. The more capitalism socially reproduces, the more atomized we become. And so the further we come from the kind of, the further we are from the vision you describe. And so again, it comes down to me about creating an anti-capitalist movement that's capable of changing our material conditions. Okay, okay. Um, You mentioned early on in the beginning, you know, part of the, kind of unique moment now for like promoting say coppice agroforestry is this recognition that supply chains actually maybe are fragile right um that um and and this this kind of leads into another potential theory of change which i'm curious to see how it interfaces with eco-socialism and and how you get there and the material conditions is it's just the fact that you know we're we're probably heading into a world with more climate chaos, you know, uh, heading into a world, uh, probably less net energy throughput overall, um, you know, whether the energy return on investments of oil exploration goes down or we, you know, enact laws to prevent that because we're worried about climate change uh, and renewables can't make up the difference and not in the same way for a variety of reasons. Um, there's, you know, thinking that, you know, in many ways that itself will force us to localize, that will impact the material conditions that would lead us to localize. And then the question becomes, how do we do that intelligently, right? Without, as you mentioned, picking out scapegoats, right? Without, you know, just leading to widespread conflict and war. Um, right. Yeah. Do you want to, you want to talk a little bit about yeah. that? I mean, I agree with that analysis. I, I, and I would I would state it this way. I think everything stays the same until it becomes costly. Yeah. So, you know, if the climate collapses, then maintaining these conditions become too costly. So our to answer your question at the end there, our responsibility, if we want to make change, is to make the status quo costly. And then to make the kind of change that we want to see both attractive and practically feasible. And the way we do that is through collective militant action. And that is organizing, that is politics, the struggle for power. And we do we succeed at that by exploiting strategic locations in society mm-hmm. and strategic moments like this one mm-hmm. by exercising governing power, whatever form that takes, and having the technocratic know-how to actually implement our alternative. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that you... you the analysis is correct. We can let that passively happen. We can allow our status quo to become passively too expensive to maintain. 
leading to uncontrolled collapse, which no one knows what that would look like, but uh, there's plenty of good reasons to believe it would be exceedingly grim. Uh, or we can do it intentionally and as a byproduct of an organized movement. And that could look incredibly joyful. And it would probably look like less energy overall, but there are plenty of us, it sounds like you as well, who believe that that would actually lead to a more joyful, better material existence rather than a worse one. And I think that's really important. Any big change <coughs> creates what's called, um, sorry, <laughs> uh, creates what's called the transition trough problem. And so anytime you transition a major system like an economy from, say, capitalism, socialism, or whatever it is, there is a dip in quality of life that happens because the old systems are going offline while the new systems are coming online. The key to succeeding at that change is to make the transition trough as shallow and as short as possible. So if you can make that dip relatively, un relatively pleasant or at least minimize the unpleasantness and get into the good stuff of the new system quickly, then you have a much better chance of holding on than if you don't. People lose patience very quickly when their quality of life is deteriorating. So um, if we can do that intentionally, if we can organize to transition from this world into the next one mm -hmm. in a way that is deliberate and careful and thoughtful and still keeps people warm and happy and comfortable, then yes, I think we can succeed at doing that. If we just wait, if we, if we just try to become you know, the rats after the asteroid wipes out the dinosaurs, there are way, way, way too many variables to know what could happen. And also it would be an absolute nightmare to live through in all likelihood. Okay. And you, you, you mentioned that you've long been interested in, in permaculture. Uh, what, what do the permaculturalists have to teach, have to teach the socialists? Uh, that last piece, the technocratic know-how, I think that's really the, the key contribution Okay. You know, Molson and Holmgren did try to articulate permaculture as a political vision to an extent, and, and I believe completely failed. And mm -hmm. permaculture today is, is illustrates that quite well. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is not uh, it is not successful as a political influence. What about agroecology as a movement? Uh, I mean, I guess the question again comes down to like. What is the theory of change? Where's the end goal? How is it organized? You know, I, I don't. I'm not sure I know enough about agroecology specifically, mm. but I mean, in permaculture, we we have, in my assessment, an absolutely uh, incredible technical achievement, um, something that is truly mind bending in terms of what it can accomplish uh, technically. And you know, I've lived it, I've seen it, and I've done it, and it's. It is a breakthrough in agriculture that it is, uh, yeah, it's changed my life and it's changed my orientation, how we grow food and what's possible and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But it is completely at odds with the commodity production system. And that's why we don't see permaculture implemented widely, mm -hmm. because it is not good at efficiently producing capitalist goods. It is good at providing for human needs. But that is at odds with, with profit maximization. Those are not the same goals. They only overlap incidentally. And so I, I think permaculture, to extend it beyond the technical, um, would require a, a reconfiguring of what permaculture means. But the, the technocratic piece is not a small one. That is huge. I mean, 
governments have struggled with agricultural policy uh, forever. It's really hard to do, to grow enough food for people to, to deal with the vagaries of weather, especially as climate collapse progresses. This is a very, very important thing to be able to offer what the future could look like and that it could be a future of abundance uh, rather than a future of, of miserable austerity. So I think that's that's what it has to offer. And that's, I think, where I probably end up with, in some disagreements with people is they probably think it also has to offer lessons on governing power <clears throat> and collective action. And I don't really think it does. Okay, okay. Well, let me uh, prod you a little bit more here on this uh, in permaculture and related to subsidiarity. I mean, so a big emphasis on permaculture is it's really kind of a systems thinking, systems framework that, you know, uh, is a lot about kind of trying things, seeing how they work, adjusting, you know, observing the system, you know, getting feedback. Um, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, knowing like the technical, you mentioned like the technical achievement, but it's not, it's not just a, a script that you can apply everywhere. It's something that, you know, there's general principles, there's some techniques, but, but it, it really, for it to work, it, it has to be implemented with in local contexts. And so I, I guess, I guess my question is, is within your kind of political analysis, is there, is there flexibility at local scales for the kind of autonomy uh, of individuals or communities necessary to go through this experimentation process? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'd say people should be free to do anything they want as long as they don't hurt anyone else unnecessarily. So absolutely, they should be free to experiment with implementation in, in whatever way they want, so long as they're not uh, destroying the planet, right? So it's the and that, again, goes back to the harm principle, right? As long as you're not violating the harm principle, I don't see why there should be any uh, any regulation of behavior at all. The whole point is to prevent unnecessary harm. And so there, there's no need for a top-down solution on something that doesn't involve potential harm. But if experimentation with local uh, solutions involves poisoning a river that people downstream have to drink from, then obviously that shouldn't be permitted. And there needs to be a structure that prevents that, right? We can't have that kind of experimentation. And so, yeah, there, it, on the one hand, it's ex it should be extremely free and extremely open. On the other hand, there have to be very clear red lines that have to be enforceable. Okay, okay. Um, and so you mentioned, you kind of talked about the harm principle that's referring to in economics, negative externalities. Yes. Um, there's also positive externalities, uh, and there's a whole movement dedicated to trying to incentivize positive externalities called regenerative finance. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you've come across that and if you have any thoughts on, on regenerative finance, basically trying to say price carbon or price ecosystem services, uh, reward farmers or land stewards um, for providing those services, uh, or do you, do you see that as too like too much of a commodification of, of these positive externalities well I, I think it i will say i don't know a ton about it specifically but i it sounds to me like where i would probably disagree with the folks involved in this is that sounds to me like it has strong potential as a transitionary model but it has in my to me based on my value system zero potential as as like a utopian model um and so because of what i talked about earlier the transition trough problem you do need the solutions like that one like what you're describing 
in order to ease out of one system and into another. But you have to be doing that deliberately. It can't be happening by accident. You can't be implementing these things thinking this is going to be the end goal and then just kind of create new end goals all the time until you get to the, the solution. That's why I call it, why I think it is, is sort of important to call it eco-socialism because that keeps the horizon in view, right? We're not doing these things for their own sake. We're doing them because we're working towards an end goal that looks quite different than the current world. So... Mm-hmm. You know, things like a carbon tax, um, aligning incentives, so on and so forth. These, to me, are good ways of managing the wind down of capitalism and the creation of a new system that is post-capitalist, that does not involve the commodification of life, um, that is rooted in human values, and so on and so forth. So I guess it depends how the people working on this articulate this. Is this a way of, of easing the transition into a new system, or... Is this a way of creating a kind of utopian capitalism? If it's the former, great. If it's the latter, I wouldn't be on board with that. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, it's interesting. We've had a conversation with um, a founder of what's called Regen Network. And, you know, our our skepticisms revolved around this idea of, you know, making everything legible. Or, you 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 know, when you make everything legible and you you try to incentivize everything monetarily well one you know you know you have the kind of the seeing like a state critique of you know you're putting everything into a spreadsheet right and you, you might be changing the nature of the thing itself to optimize what what needs to be optimized in the spreadsheet and so you might be actually destroying the system from the inside um but you know two it, you know it can the, a system like that could perhaps be easily gamed um now in his defense you know he had really good answers and he's thought really deeply about these things and he talks a lot about kind of like community kind of councils and 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 different types of kind of data gathering not just kind of quantitative um kind of technocratic data gathering and various things um anyway um that's kind well, of, that's, I, kind of a, that's kind of an aside yeah it brings up an important point which is that um well, two things. One, you know, any system that envisions capital you know, as part of the end solution has, has a problem, which is that capital, all, all it is capable, capable of doing is seeking its maximum return. That's it. Mm-hmm. Capitalism is not a moral or immoral system. It is an amoral system. All it seeks is profit maximization. And it does not care what the externalities are because it is incapable of caring. So as long as capital is around, it's like this corrosive poison that's going to end up doing what it does. Um, I think you know, his 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 uh, approach to that is basically to broaden the definition of capital and to say, okay, we have to account for ecological capital, for spiritual capital, for social capital, for et cetera, et cetera. And we have to basically bring that into the pricing system. Um with with the idea that then if you're trying to you know uh optimize you know returns on investment uh the returns because they're defined more holistically would actually be good for the planet you know that that's that's the that's the idea there okay well i I mean i don't want to attack somebody's ideas that i don't you know i'm not super familiar with but i will say in response to what you're so i you know a caveat there but i will say that um so I think there there might be a problem there, which is that um, 
capital and the state fuse. And so the system you're describing of pricing all these things uh, in order to reflect their externalities requires a, a very heavy hand to enforce. And that hand has to be the state. There's no other way to do it. it, it and since capitalism and the state are fused, they are one and the same. Um, the state under capitalism is just the expression of capitalist interests uh, um, through governance. Uh, there is capital will always be eroding those regulations because that's that is capital seeking its maximum return. So, how are you going to maintain a viable state that is going to be pricing all these externalities? while simultaneously generating maximum return, capital will eventually, will always be lobbying to reduce those regulations and to limit the the state's hand in preventing maximum return. So that's one of capitalism's superpowers, is it's incredibly good at co-opting state power. The other thing that I think bears mentioning, and this is truly a side note, is that capitalism has this fail-safe built into it called recuperation. This was a concept created by um, the situationists. And it's a really important one. And I think it's one that anybody who's, in, who's thinking about trying to change capitalism has to consider. And that's that capitalism is able to commodify its own resistance. So if you are, if you are dissenting from capitalism, that actually can end up feeding capitalism. It creates its own value through commodification of dissent. So we, we've seen so many cultures and subcultures and movements uh, that have that have worked this way. The, the most obvious example, right, is like the Che Guevara shirt, right? Like the image of Che himself, the anti-capitalist revolutionary murdered by the CIA, ends up becoming a new commodity, thus feeding uh, and, and strengthening capitalism. There had unless you confront that problem and it's an extremely tricky one um there there's no way to make a system like the one you're describing work i i'm sure he disagreed but i i won't try and i, I won't try and mimic his disagreement uh <laughs> it might be interesting in the future to to have a, a panel uh you know comparing you know or, or discussing this uh but uh to move on a bit um what is in your kind of utopian political vision, what is the role of markets, if any? And, and what is the role of personal property? Well, if by markets you mean um, the commodity market, then there would be none because that type of market requires the abstraction of value uh, into money. And that is a core component of capitalism. So just to spell out what that means, uh, and, and I'll tie this into private property, too, because they're actually the same question. If you possess something, that means you literally hold it. And it means it is generally understood to belong to you as like a personal possession. That is different than private property, which is the abstraction of that idea into a legal concept of private ownership. And you are then, through private property, able to own something that you do not possess. You can own something that you can never, that you cannot see or touch, right? Mm -hmm. So that's private property. Then you abstract that further. You get a second abstraction by commodifying that, and you turn that into a movable uh, uh, abstraction in the form of money. Mm -hmm. So you can then, you know, to use a simple example, let's say I possess. Uh, an apple. That's easy to do. I can hold an apple. It has a use value, which is very obvious. There's no speculative value to it. 
<clears throat> if I want to own it, then I, it, it becomes my private property, regardless of where it is in the world, as long as I basically have a piece of paper enforced by the state that mm-hmm. says that is my Apple. Then I can create a, a financialized product that represents an Apple. Mm-hmm. And I can then trade that tool that abstraction of an apple with other people buying and selling abstractions of apples and we can speculate on the price of it and so on and so forth. And so that is how the capitalist market functions. That is not, that is a market completely divorced from use value, from the human value of an apple. And that is a system that, that we absolutely have to get away from if we're going to survive on this planet. Okay. So I would hope that so, there would be no role for that. So, so just to just to just to be clear, so if I am on some land, um, that's not. We could talk about the ownership structure of that land, whether it's you know uh, owned by me uh, or not. But let's let's say it is, and I uh, barter with my neighbor. Right, say my neighbor cuts my hay, and in return he gives me some beef. Um, is that 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 that's not the commodification, the kind of the financialization of uh, of goods that you're talking about? That 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 is something that um, would be acceptable in in your system. Sure, although I challenge the what it the the mean the meaning of ownership would have to be very different because of some of the things I've described, right? This notion, the notion of rights based on the harm principle requires that we understand ownership differently than we do now. Mm-hmm. So if you own a piece of land under capitalism, you have almost absolute control over what goes on there short of whatever interventions the state may have made into it, right? Like mm-hmm. regulations around what kind of septic system you can use and so on and so forth. That's the state delimiting your right to dispose of your land in whatever way you want that vision of uh, of ownership is one based in commodity form it is the idea that this thing has no value outside of its value as a commodity i to me that is a inhumane inhuman set notion of ownership it neglects the the fact that there is a web of other rights associated with something like a piece of land there are the people who live on either side of it. There are the people who may rely on it in the future. Future generations have to have some uh, expression of rights in our system. Um, there are a whole host of things that that are dependent upon that land that have may not have rights in the same way that you and I have rights, but they have some kind of right. Uh, and, and if for no other reason, then we are dependent on them. One of the things that we have learned is that ecosystems are highly interrelated systems and so you know where exactly i start and stop for instance is not as clear as as we would like it to be for the purpose of these things because i'm reliant on everything around me the animals the plants the other people um where my rights start and stop is not extremely black and white and so i think we would have to subvert our understanding of what it means to own something in order for that relationship to make sense. Okay. Uh, well, what about something like, um, you know, in, in the bioregionalist movement, there's a lot of <clears throat> enthusiasm these days about like land trusts, mm-hmm. uh, which is, um, you know, basically kind of a collective ownership of, of land that, you know, has prescribed boundaries of, you know, and, and rules governing, you know, it's kind of like a, trying to create a commons, like rules governing who gets to use what and when, um, who gets to live where and and when. And it's, you know, ideally it's kind of democratically 
decided and then you're producing goods and services which then you can trade either barter or through some kind of currency um what do you think about that model i guess i, I guess what i'm getting at is you're describing what it's what it's not but but what what would actual like like what would it mean for somebody to live in a home what would it mean for somebody to pass on their skills and knowledge of the land and the ecology and the cultural ties on to the next generation. Um, I guess I'd like a little bit more clear answer there. Sure. I mean, again, I, I refer back to the the Marx quote about writing recipes for the cookshops of the future. I can't tell you exactly what material conditions will look like in every time and place in the future after the end of capitalism, but I can tell you that I think the um, the idea that we can own things in these discrete ways has to be reflective of the fact that it's simply not true. It's a capitalist abstraction of our relationship to them. And so, um, you know, how things would be understood as belonging to one person or another would require um, a sort of specificity of culture that I don't think I'm necessarily able to articulate it right now. But I do know that in the example of land trusts, I think it's um, it, it does include a lot of the kinds of of elements that I would view as positive values, things like collective ownership uh, on a voluntary basis. Um, and, you know, these things, land trusts are generally permanently removed from speculative sales and things like that, which I think is, is great. Um, but as a strategy for change, I think people individually kind of raising money to buy land trusts and so on and so forth will only be tolerated under capitalism so long as it doesn't pose a threat to it. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to start envisioning some kind of role for the state in that dynamic. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, from a positive perspective, I think the land trust movement has a has a great deal going for it it's i think it does a pretty successful job of modeling a lot of what what ownership might look like in the future if if we are able to make that kind of change um and again you know you can move from land trust to land trust too if you don't like one you can go to another and i think that's great that there's a lot of freedom in that that's very important um and simultaneously it preserves this kind of collectivity land trusts often have a kind of constitution which i think is great and very important to, to articulating the values of people who occupy a piece of land um, but at the end of the day, we're not going to defeat capitalism by doing that ourselves. We have to wield state power in in the exercise of that. So if the goal of land trust movement is to model something that ultimately can then be taken on by a, a radicalized democratic state, one that is that's seeking to abolish capitalism and replace it with something else, then awesome, all for it. Um, if people think that they're going to essentially shop their way out of capitalism, then I think not. Okay. Okay. Um, so we have, we have about 15 more minutes or so. I'd like to switch gears a little bit. Um, I'm curious, you know, as we head into a world with, you know, likely less energy, probably more emphasis on localized food production, things of that nature, do, do you see kind of trends in urbanization continuing apace? Or do you see kind of a, uh, you know, populations kind of moving back out into the countryside and forming you know, I, I guess a more distributed, decentralized population structures closer to resources that they rely on. Um, I, I guess, what's your view of urbanization? This this is really a question about energy. Um, the 
miracle of fossil fuels is that a you know gallon of diesel will do the work of of 10 healthy human beings and so we have had the, the reason we've been able to depopulate uh, the countryside is that we now have machines that do the work of humans mm-hmm. and they're able to do that because we have um, this abundant source of energy and unfortunately it has the terrible side effect of of making the planet uninhabitable for humans so if we're going if we if we by some miracle find another source of energy like that um, then I don't see why there would be a return to the land mm-hmm. um, if there is um, if there is a abrupt or slow uh, weaning from from fossil fuels, then I don't know what source of energy would replace it other than human labor. Mm. And there's simply no way to produce enough food um, without fossil fuels unless humans fill that gap. Humans and the animals, uh, you know, obviously being directed by humans. So. Um, it depends what the future looks like. If it's the collapse scenario to describe, yeah. then yeah, we'll have no. There will be no choice in the matter. There won't. There also will be no need for fifty zillion, you know, people doing uh, computer jobs or whatever. Right. Right. Well, let me ask you this, and this is kind of a controversial topic, but you know, fertilizers. You know, petro fertilizers. Um, do you think we could feed the current global population without petro fertilizers? I have no doubt we could, but I think what we've seen in Sri Lanka. There's a lot, there's a lot of people that that would object to that claim. What 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 leads to your optimism? Well, first I'll say why I'm not pessimistic, <laughs> or why there might be cause for pessimism. You look at an example like Sri Lanka, which tried to go off uh, petro fertilizers, um, you know, very very quickly, and and it led to total failure. And of course, that is. Um, that has affirmed the viewpoint of a lot of people who think we could never do it. But, you know, a terribly sloppy execution does not actually mean that an idea is is unfeasible. It just means it was a terribly sloppy execution. Mm -hmm. Um, This comes down to a lot of questions about, uh, it actually circles back to private property, right? If if, If the question is, could we supply everybody with food and maintain the current distribution of property? Absolutely not. We have wildly unequal distribution of property that has dispossessed most people from the land. This is a a forcible, coercive process called proletarianization that's been going on for the last 200 years. It's about separating people from the means of subsistence in order to force them to commodify their labor in the capitalist market. Hmm. So if if the goal, if, if you mean, can we continue doing that and then just switch to nitrogen fixers and organics, then no, definitely no. Wow. Can we do it if we re- if we radically reimagine what land distribution and access to the tools of subsistence look like in the world mm-hmm. and do away with the horrendous inequality that puts billions of people in a terribly precarious material conditions, then yes, absolutely, we can do it. Okay, so the idea here is that with more, um, uh, you know, human labor input and more kind of biointensive agroecological permaculture, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever techniques you want to use, you could actually grow more food per acre. Well, it's not just that. It's that there's, I mean, industrial agriculture requires 10 calories of input for every one calorie of output. Right. So industrial agriculture, mm-hmm. which is... Energy know, input in particular. Yeah. 
Yeah, which is considered this miracle of productivity is mm-hmm. actually wildly inefficient. And yeah. it is in, it is a house of cards propped up by fossil capitalism. If you were to take away the magic trick of fossil fuels, no one would be doing it. <laughs> it would make zero sense. Who would throw away 10 calories to get one calorie out? It, it, make, it doesn't work. Um, but if you say, okay, you can't use fossil fuels anymore, um, how are you going to produce enough food? You have to you have to envision not just uh, industrial agriculture plus nitrogen fixtures, right? You have to envision an entirely different agricultural system, an entirely different food distribution system. We actually already produce enough food for everybody on Earth. We produce enough food for like one and a half Earths, but it's distributed in a highly unequal way. So we have people starving while other people are overfed. It's, again, the nightmare of inequality. So all of these things are solvable problems, even with 8 billion people on Earth, but it, it requires a, a total reimagining of our political economy. So it, it, no, it is not a plug-and-play technical fix. Plug-in or biointensive methods, plug-out fertilizer, no, not, not going to happen. It requires these larger changes. Okay, okay. Um, <clears throat> I guess another, another question that comes up, so I'm just kind of throwing out some random questions here. Um, there's been in the last few years a rising interest, I would say, on the right in in permaculture, um, in you know local food systems, and I, I'm guessing, do you see that as kind of a threat? Do you see that as a potential to build bridges? Uh, I, I'm guessing you're going to say that, you know, as long as they believe in you know um, kind of capitalist principles of you know of, of ownership then you know it's 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 not going to go far enough or it it, it might even turn you know <laughs> in, in dark directions but I, i'm curious what you think about this phenomenon you know the fact that you know when you're talking about municipal food forests and stuff you know a lot of people conservative or people on the right um would be interested in something like this but they might be turned off from at least the label of socialism, if not what it would be in your idea and practice. Do you want to comment on that? Sure. I mean, I think it's it's interesting. It's weird. It's certainly not something I ever expected. There's lots of things like that happening now, though. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, well, my reaction uh, at first is there's a lot of cynicism in that interest. I think it's about invoking a an imaginary folkish you know return to the land kind of uh caricature of what it means to uh to be a subsistence farmer or whatever and you know that has all kinds of pre-modern associations and and whatever it's an absurd fantasy it's what i would call an attempt to create a myth symbol complex sort of like a proto-nationalism for uh, a new right-wing state, and I think it has bears almost no relationship to the reality of what it means um, to do any of these things. So it's kind of this like right-wing cottage core. I don't know. It's it's bizarre, but I also you know I got to assume there are some people who are sincerely interested in it, and I think probably for some of the same reasons they regard it as this kind of traditional thing, which I think is is very weird. Um, tradition is is just what was convenient in the past, so. Their fetishization of tradition, I find very odd. Well, um, there's there's like you know voices <clears throat> like Wendell Berry, for example, which a lot of people in Dio, you know, really get a lot of inspiration from his writings. That you know is not 
you know, I, I would I wouldn't call Wendell Berry right wing, but I would call him a certain kind of conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, that he probably wouldn't think of himself as a socialist, but but he really values community ties, uh, land stewardship, things of this nature. I, I guess for people like that and, and kind of like the Wendell Berry um tradition you know do you see kind of a way for that you know do you see a bridge do do you see a way for you know for them to you know uh interact with your vision of eco-socialism that wouldn't offend their values or your values um well yeah potentially um it would require them to become anti-capitalists so, but but, the, but 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 we'd have to talk about what that meant, though. No, like, exactly. You know, like like you can you can call Wendell Berry an anti-capitalist in some ways. He wouldn't call he wouldn't use that term, but he's very much against the commodification of of most goods. You know, industrialization of agriculture. Um, you know, and so I, I guess you know there are certain terms that that people have baggage around. You know, mm-hmm. uh, fairly or unfairly. Uh, and so I guess, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I guess I, I'd want to know what you meant by anti-capitalist. Okay, well, there's a lot there. <laughs> One is I, I agree with what you're saying. I think people often identify the symptoms of something like capitalism as being troubling or, or upsetting, but they fail to understand that they're symptoms rather than causes. And um, I think that's what's at work there. And, you know, there's a famous saying, and to be clear, I'm not applying this to the people you're talking about, but I think it illustrates the point. Um, the saying is that anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools, right? It identifies a lot of the problems of capitalism, but it assigns blame to a specific subgroup that actually has nothing to do with it. And I think we get a lot of that kind of thinking, not to be clear, not prejudicial thinking, but kind of missing the forest for the trees thinking where people look at the symptoms of capitalism the corrosion of our relationships you know it was marx that said that you know under capitalism all that is solid melts into air all that is holy is profaned i mean those are lines that could come out of the mouths of a lot of these people but the difference is that marx identified capitalism as the as the source of that corrosion mm-hmm. so as long as these folks are just focusing on the symptoms rather than the causes i think it'll be very it's very hard to make common cause because you're always, it's a dog chasing its tail. You're always missing what's actually going on. So is that a point of entry for having those conversations and trying to get people to understand that this is a systemic problem and not just an idealism problem, not a problem, you know, the failure of people to think about things right or whatever? Yes. Great. That's a point. That's, that's what I would call an organizing opening. Um, but is there a natural common cause there? I mean, dissatisfaction with life under capitalism is al- always has the potential to create a bridge. But again, it would require um, an understanding of root causes instead of just symptoms. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, because I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, what would a new politics look like in the United States that accounted for the fact that many people are, say, very conservative or, you know, are part of conservative traditional religious communities. Um, And what would a realistic, you know, eco-socialism look like with these different values? And, and, And I'm just... You know, I'm always trying to to look for you know where is the common ground that people don't know exist, right? Sure. Like where no, are people being turned off from each other 
because they're triggered by certain terminologies that each has different associations with. And so one, you know, one thing that we talk about a lot is that one of the benefits of localizing uh, production is that we're starting to relate to each other in much more physical, tangible, materialistic, you know, materialist ways, right? And um, it allows us to see our common humanity. It, it allows us to have conversations that might not otherwise be possible. Um, and, you know, it might lead to more realistic assessments of what are the root causes of, you know, of the problems that, that we're all identifying. Yeah, sorry if the dog barking in the background is my dog has found a deer. Um, the so yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, I agree with you that the localization in that way creates those openings. But as long as those relationships are still governed by capitalism, then they're still alienated. So localizing capitalism will not ultimately break down the, those those problems. It, it, it creates an opening to talk about them and to hopefully address capitalism as the root cause. Uh, but simply localization is not enough. Um, and I, I guess to return to another, to, to the earlier part of the question, you know, how do we bridge that gap? Eco-socialism, the word socialism is kind of a lightning rod for a lot of people. I mean, I, there's a couple of things there. One, I think the success or failure of any political project is mostly determined by whether or not it improves people's quality of life. So, you know, what matters for eco-socialists or for anybody seeking to um, create a vision like that in the future is that that we are able to actually seize and wield power and then that we do so in a way that improves people's quality of life. People tend not to care about the labels if you're making their life better. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. And I think that's, that, that is the, that's the key to the whole thing. The second part is um, that eco-socialism needs to offer articulate a vision for a, a, a future of abundance and a future that restores a lot of these the things that you're describing that people do really sincerely value and identifies the cause as capitalism and helps people um, understand that these phenomenon they're experiencing um, are, are problems that are symptoms of some a system that can change and that we are capable of changing for the better. And, you know, I think a lot of the associations, too, are caught up in, like, the bizarre derangements of contemporary American politics. And, you know, certainly eco-socialism for me is a totally distinct ideology from liberalism. Um, And I think people tend to think of eco-socialism or socialism of any kind as being like an extreme version of liberalism and it it is absolutely not that is a a different distinct ideology that is actually in opposition to liberalism so articulating that and making that clear um, and expressing that through our policy i think is a key to winning people over as well okay cool cool um well, uh, maybe let's let's wrap up by uh, if there's anything else that you want to comment on or talk about, um, you know, maybe one of the, the the questions on Twitter or just anything else that you think we missed that you'd like to uh, finish up with. Wow, we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> um, gosh, I don't know. I guess um, I'd have to go back through the questions we got. We got some good questions. I want to make. I, I don't think we can answer every single one of them, but maybe we should just quickly take a look. Um, and see if we can uh, make some people happy here. 
<laughs> okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to answer. I'm gonna do like a speed round. Is that okay? I'll yeah, try to answer them really quick. Okay, it. I'm just scrolling through my mentions right now, so apologies if I miss anybody. I'm just going most recent. Do you cook on the wood stove? Uh, not yet. Haven't cooked. I live in a tent. I don't know if people have, <laughs> have been like up to date on my Twitter thing. Um, I live in a tent on the land. Uh, on on private property. Yeah, yeah. Sadly, no other option uh, than that right now at the moment for me. Um, but yeah, I, I I see what you're doing there. <laughs> this yeah. is not a. Um, I'm, I'm just being cute. I'm just being cute. Go. Right, go right. It go gets. Ahead. I mean, it, to respond in earnestness, right? Like, there's a. Um, this gets back to the question of means and ends that I talked about earlier, right? I don't think it's a politics are not a, a personal purity uh, test. They are uh, an organizing principle. So anyway, yes, I love a private property. Um, do I, have I modified my wood stove to make it hold heat better at night? No, I'd say I'm still learning how to build a fire in a wood stove that will last all night. Um, the last two nights I've had to get up at like one in the morning to feed it again. So I still have some work to do there. Um, Okay, I can't. There's a lot of technical questions about living in a tent. Wow, uh, I haven't I haven't had any issues with animals inside the tent. Uh, I get water from a uh, from a spring box uh, that I restored. Uh, that was probably built about a hundred years ago and completely fell apart, and I rebuilt it. Um, also, rainwater. Um, what do I do when the water gets frozen when it's 20 Fahrenheit outside? Well, I try to keep my water unfrozen. I, I have running water and hot water, um, in my outdoor tent. And so that's why I, uh, entombed it in plastic and, uh, built a like one and a half cubic yard compost pile inside. So that's my strategy. We'll see if it works. I have no idea. Um, Okay, why did you start a farm in the woods and living in a tent? Um, because I, I really wanted to, just for myself, basically. I've, I've always enjoyed permaculture stuff, and I wanted to be really maximalist about it and just go for it. So that was the dream. And I found a really cool piece of land that I really liked, and it didn't have a house on it, but I wanted to start living on it right away. So I'm, I'm unfussy. I'm low-maintenance. I just Living in a tent doesn't bother me. Actually, I love it. Um, Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm gone. I'm gone. Uh, there's a question about saffron is, uh, I grow, sa I've, I planted 250 saffron bulbs this year. Uh, and they, they, they flowered like right away. They, uh, it was kind of a fascinating thing. They flower in the fall. Um, one of the only things to do that. And so I've been harvesting like handfuls of saffron, which is really cool. Uh, the question is, is that kind of high quality, high value farm product? Is that potential for economic freedom as a farmer? I'd say maybe, I guess as long as you're kind of chasing high-end commodities, I don't think in the current, under the current material conditions that farms will ever succeed that way. Really, the only way I see farms making money is in value-added stuff. Um, and that's a big part of why a lot of them do education stuff, because there's no overhead. So hmm. saffron might work for a little while, but eventually. Uh, is the tent canvas? Mm, I don't think so. It's like a plastic type thing or something. I don't know. It's waterproof, but it's got a rain fly. Um, Jason, do you remember any other questions? I'm looking through when I announced it like last week. Um, one question was local food UBI versus technocratic UBI. Mm. This is a good question. So the reason I went with local food UBI is a I needed to come up with a, you know, what do you do with the food that's grown in the in the municipal food forest? A lot of different options for that. But what I like about the local food UBI is instead of giving people money, um, which is, you know, two steps removed from an actually usable thing, 
it's decommodifying the the product it's something it's creating food in the commons through um, a collective expression of the commons through the labor of, of people in the community and then rather than abstracting that into money or some other thing of you know representation of value it's just relying on the use value it's food for the sake of food and people need food so give them food as that 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 decommodify something that otherwise could be commodified. So I thought that was a, a good um, approach. The other thing I like about the UBI and not necessarily a cash UBI is that it, it's an extremely humane policy. It treats everyone as equal, even if they're unable to work, you know, even if they're sick or disabled. Um, and I think there's that that is a really human value because all humans are fundamentally equal, have an equal right to life. Um, and so that was the motivation behind structuring it as UBI. Okay. okay. Well, I'm, I'm looking through this. A lot of people are saying I look forward to I look I look forward to to listening. Uh, we have um, some that you've already kind of answered. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I don't have anything else for now. I thought yeah, I thought we covered a lot. I thought it was a good conversation. Cool. Um, yeah. Uh, I think uh, if, if we were to do this again, I, I'd want to dig more into what you mean by capitalism uh, and kind of this necessity of identifying that as as the enemy um, and, and exactly what we mean by that. And, and I think you kind of answered it earlier when you talked about kind of um, the, the the abstraction, you know, the financialization of tangible things that can then be bought or sold, um, you know, in, in kind of new layers of abstraction. But I want to get more into kind of what are the limits of that, you know, get more into, you know, if I'm trading, you know, my good or service to my neighbor, um, uh-huh. you know, and that's kind of a market mechanism, is that capitalism? And, and, and what are the conditions in which it would be and what are the conditions in which it wouldn't be? But I think... I think that's probably too much for for this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Save it for another time. That sounds good to me. I think uh, I think the, the that's there's a lot of really good questions and important points to be made there, um, and I think you you hint at some of them, right? Like capitalism is not a a single thing. It's a it's a mixture of different components working together to create this this unified system. And so breaking that down is a really important um, step to understanding you know, our material conditions today. Cool. Cool. Well, all right. Yeah, this was fun. And, uh, this should come out, I think in a, in a week or two, probably a couple of weeks, um, awesome. putting out two per week, but yeah, I think that's, that's where we are there. So yeah. Um, we'll enjoy, enjoy your life in a tent in the winter. <laughs> in the forest. And we're, all, we're, all, we're all following how this is working. Cause I'm sure a lot of people <laughs> have been doing this. <laughs> yeah. I'll keep updating my, uh, my Twitter feed is kind of like a micro survival blog. I guess that's what it seems to be capturing the interest of a segment of the population. So I'll keep, keep doing that. <laughs> so besides your Twitter, Twitter handle at the last farm, uh, any other places people can find you or connect with you? That's it for right now. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, I encourage you to check it out. Um, even if half the things you said pissed you off, uh, <laughs> it's, especially if it pissed you especially off, especially <laughs> if they pissed you off. Um, I found his, his account really interesting and insightful. Uh, so I, I, I think you should still check it out, uh, and, and, and follow him. So with that, uh, take care. All right. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Bye. Ooh.